That's a good word. Thanks, Sherry. At Glenn Bible Church, uh, we believe that God is still healing. And whether in this life or the life to come, those who trust in Christ receive uh, the healing that we so deeply long for, the restoration of bodies, whether it's in this life or the life to come, that God is healing. And I love the word that God's faithful, uh, regardless of whether or not we receive it in this life. He's carrying us along. He, the psalmist says he, um, he joins us in the valley of the shadow of death. He joins us in the place of our brokenness and he carries along. He prepares a table before us there in that uh, hard, difficult time. At the end of the service, there will be a couple songs we'll sing and as always is our habit, there'll be uh, folks down front uh, to receive you, a prayer team member to receive you on both sides if you want prayer, prayer to endure and prayer for healing. It's not one or the other, it's both hands. So don't hesitate to come forward. If you're new to the church, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here at Glowing Bible Church. Glad you're here. As many of you know, I had the distinct privilege of being away all summer on sabbatical at GBC. Sabbatical is a time for special projects, to do some special projects. And one of the special projects that was on my tick sheet was touring the Civil Rights Trail. The Civil Rights Trail is a self-guided tour of important civil rights sites in America, if you want a comprehensive list. There's a good website, just Google Civil Rights Trail. It'll come up. There are dozens of possible places to visit. Sherry and I put together the places that we thought we could get to and that we felt drawn to. We began in New Orleans, just outside New Orleans, actually, about an hour outside at a place called Whitney Plantation. Then we proceeded north through Alabama, Selma, Montgomery, Birmingham. And we concluded in Northern Virginia at Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, his plantation called Monticello, and then on into DC, did some civil rights sites in DC. It was a powerful experience for us as we learned more about the racial justice and the, the work for racial justice that's been going on for several hundred years in our nation and is ongoing. One of the most impactful sites for me was to visit Martin Luther King Jr.'s church, the church where he pastored in Montgomery. MLK served as the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church from 54 to 60. So six years. Here's a picture of the church, which is located uh, less than 50 yards from the state capitol. The church is the red brick building on the right, the state capitol, the far left building. And uh, you could throw a baseball from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and, and get it onto the Capitol grounds. In fact, the Capitol grounds start right across the street, basically, from the Dexter Avenue Church, which is no small matter. It's significant if you remember the role that MLK, <coughs> MLK played as a pastor in the Civil Rights Movement and the role that Alabama's government officials played, not to mention its laws, in maintaining segregation. It was interesting to me to see the geography of the battle, so to speak, for civil rights. For example, it was in Montgomery that Rosa Parks was arrested December 1st, 1955. If you're, doing the, if you're piecing together the timeline, it can be a little hard to do in our heads, but she's arrested in December 55. MLK had been leading at Dexter Avenue Baptist for about a year by that time. She refused to give up her seat on a bus to white passengers, which was the law in Montgomery at that time. The year of arrest, 55, MLK then, was a part of organizing 
the Montgomery bus boycott, which essentially crippled the economy of Montgomery for a year, a year. Interestingly, it was while he was a pastor at Dexter Avenue and during the Montgomery bus boycott, the king wrote a letter. So it stretched, the boycott stretched from 55 into 56 and ended in 56, about a year after Rosa Parks was arrested. King wrote a letter to the American church, which was read from the pulpit at Dexter Avenue Baptist on November 4th. 1956, just one month before the bus boycott was ended. Here's an excerpt. You've become the richest nation in the world, MLK writes to the American church. But Americans, there is a danger. I still contend that money can be the root of all evil. I'm afraid that many among you are more concerned about making a living than making a life. You're prone to judge the success of your profession by the index of your salary and the size of the wheelbase on your automobile rather than the quality of service to humanity. These are just a few of the words. It's a long letter. It's easy to find. MLK's, you can Google it, letter to the American church. This written 65 years ago this fall. If you were to write a letter to the American church, what would you say? What compliments and critiques would you offer? What challenges would you put forward to the American church? More to the point, if Jesus were to write a letter to the American church, what do you suppose he would say? I ask what Jesus might say to the church because that's the very context of this morning's passage in the book of Revelation. We learned at the close of chapter 1 last week that Jesus was seen by the Apostle John standing among seven golden lampstands, which represented seven specific churches in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. And that John was to write down the message that he heard and the vision that he saw and make sure it got delivered to the seven churches. Here's part of John's vision and this is right before the message to the seven churches. In his right hand, John sees Jesus. He held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth, a sharp, double-edged sword, his face like the sun shining in all its brilliance. We learn later in, in the chapter, chapter 1, that these seven stars Jesus is holding in his right hand represent seven angels of the churches. Of course, angels are God's messengers, and the combination of Jesus holding these seven messengers and having this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, you get the distinct impression that he's got something to say, a message, which messengers will carry to these seven churches. Sure enough, as you flip from chapter 1 into 2 and 3, you get seven distinct messages to each, one message to each of these churches. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture. If you're not already, already there to Revelation chapter 2, we'll read the first message to the church at Ephesus. I'll read it for us. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 2, let me give you a little bit of background on Ephesus and a deep dive into chapters 2 and 3. You can learn lots about the context of this part of the ancient world at this time. Each of these churches having kind of unique cultural issues that, that are addressed by Jesus. 
Although the Apostle Paul spent nearly three years, three years, leading the church in Ephesus himself, Christians in Ephesus faced some significant challenges. For example, notable among the religious influences in the city were the practices of all sorts of divination. The bottom of the screen is an amulet that uh, is from Ephesus and would ward off, it was thought, evil spirits. Ephesus was kind of the center of divination in the ancient world. All types of activities went on in the city, people trying to speak with the dead and casting spells. In fact, all over the ancient world, magic spells were, were referred to as Ephesian letters because it was the place. If you had a magic spell from Ephesus, then you had the best of spells. Even greater, an obstacle to Christian faith uh, potentially was the Temple of Artemis. There's a picture, a rendering on the screen. The Greek goddess of fertility it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, 420 feet long, so 33% longer than a football field, 420 feet long, 240 feet wide, 60 feet tall. Given her role in the pantheon of Greek gods, fertility, both male and female ritual prostitution took place there at the temple. This was not an easy city. That's a statue of Artemis there on the screen. This was not an easy city to follow Jesus. Real challenges. Here's the message of Jesus to this church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. Jesus knows our deeds this morning. Your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Compliments followed by critique. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do we have ears to hear? Not just listen. Everybody in here has ears this morning, but do we hear? How do we feel about the message to the Christians in Ephesus? I think it might have been hard for them to hear from their Savior, I hold this against you. Do you think that would be hard to hear? And then the particularities of the critique. I hold this against you, and then the specifics. You've lost your first love. You don't love me the way you used to. While it was probably deeply comforting to hear that the Savior knows the activities in which the Ephesians had done well, I would imagine that Jesus' critique stung a little bit. What do you think? as well as the warning, compliment. And there's a, a template, not a formula, but there's a template in each of these 
letters to the churches, there's um, a description of who the Savior is. Then there is usually some compliments, some critiques, a warning if they don't change their ways. I bet it was a lot to absorb. After all, we're not really in the habit of receiving compliments or critiques directly from our Savior, are we? Yet, yet it is just this type of evaluation that we will each receive at the end of time and for which we're to be helping one another prepare. Do we have ears? Paul writes, for we must all appear. Do we have ears? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether complimentary or poor, whether good or bad. We might want to give some thought to this reality. It's not just the seven churches of Asia Minor that Christ has compliments for and critique for. He certainly does for the American church, for me, for us. Truth is, we might want to begin preparing for this moment when we stand before our Savior by making sure that we have someone whom we trust to provide us with commentary on our lives. Whom do you trust to carry the words of Jesus to you? Seven messengers in his right hand representing the angels of the churches, perceivably one angel per each church and carrying this message. Whom do you trust to carry the words of Jesus to you, whether complimentary or critique, whether a note of praise or a call to repentance? Whom do you trust to help you prepare for judgment? If you have no one that you trust in this way, then you don't have a friend at least not in the way biblical friendship is defined. Look at how one aspect of biblical friendship is described in the book of Proverbs. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Sometimes I, I see in myself a desire for flattery, even if it's from it, from someone I don't trust rather than from wounds from someone I clearly trust. And I'm, I'm not unique. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Imagine trusting someone to wound you. I wonder if the Christians in Ephesus felt wounded by the words they heard from the messenger sent by Jesus. No one enjoys being wounded, but we certainly all need those in our lives who will say hard things to us for our good. Do you have that type of friend in your life? Are you that type of friend for anybody? We both need those friends, and we need to offer that friendship to others. During my ordination in 2003, there was an assessment of character strengths and weaknesses. And after an extended discussion with the ordination council on the one particular weakness of mine, one of the council members said in front of the entire group, Kelly, 
On this matter, I hear lots of confession, but not much repentance. And he was right. I was willing to confess a particular activity as sinful, but hadn't come to the place where I was willing to change my behavior. I was all talk. No action. There aren't many people who can say that type of thing to someone and have it produce constructive outcomes. Imagine someone saying that publicly even, in a council setting. But John Casey was that type of friend for me. John had led a church on the south side of Wheaton for 30 years. And so when he had something hard to say to me, I knew he wasn't just trying to blow me up, hurt me. Now it hurt, but that wasn't the primary goal he had for me. Later in the same chapter of Proverbs, it's Proverbs 27, we read more about the constructive impact we're to have on one another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. It's interesting, the, uh, the section of MLK's letter that I chose to read publicly and the sections I didn't choose to read. I'll just leave it to you to go read it yourself. Um, he has commentary though, on, certainly on race issues and disunity in the American church and segregation. And he has uh, comments also on capitalism run amok and how communism is not the answer. It's just not that simple from each according to his ability to each according to their need. It's just, it, Karl Marx didn't, um, he didn't uh, factor in sin <laughs> when he said, hey, let's all share. But neither does capitalism. Gordon Gecko, right? Greed is good, he said. He's a movie. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You know that when iron sharpens iron, there's friction. How many of us move towards frictious relationships? You know, when iron sharpens iron, there's heat and sparks fly. How many of us move towards relationships where there's difficulty? Do we have someone in our life whom we trust to create productive friction, heat, even if sparks fly? When Sharon and I first got married, we had to learn the art of fighting fair. I think most marriages have to learn it. Um, ours, our journey to learning to fight fair included um, a lot of money and a counselor that we sat with reg regularly. Uh, fighting is to be expected in relationships, especially in marriage. You've got two sinful people coming together. Fighting fair, though, is wounding the other not in order to win the fight, but to strengthen the other and the relationship. Fighting fair involves engaging with the other person in a way that creates friction, heat, sparks flying, but the goal of which is that both would be sharpened greater intimacy would be created. When we were first married, I fought with Sherry in order to win the fight. Sherry fought with me in order not to lose. 
two very distinct styles of fighting. One is engaging and one is retreating. But we've learned to receive hard words from one another, knowing that they're offered not to win, but to strengthen what we share in common. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says about the nature of biblical community. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more encouragement, spurring, as you see the day, and it's a particular day, it gets a capital letter, the day approaching. Spurs are warned not to bruise the animal, not to bloody the animal, but certainly to move the animal, motivate the animal, direct the animal. We're supposed to have folks in our lives that can get our attention in the most constructive manner who can move us in the right direction without bruising, without bloodying us. And for a particular outcome, a day that we're to be preparing, a capitalized day, all the more as we see the day approaching, that day will stand before our Creator. Folks, if we're without someone that we trust to wound us, someone we trust to sharpen us, then we're in jeopardy of being unprepared for the day of judgment. And we're missing out on the constructive voice in our life that helps us hear words of Jesus. Because the truth is there are seven letters in chapters two and three, but much of what's said to each of these churches is constructive for us 21 centuries later. That's why we beat the drum around here of fellowship. The staff of Glowing Bible Church while I was away on sabbatical cast a little post-COVID vision, the 111 vision. We beat the drum of fellowship because people have been tempted and we still have some that are staying at home for no good reason. Not that they're immunocompromised, it's just really comfortable to sit on the couch But you can't do church alone at home. You can watch a church service alone at home, but you can't do church at home alone. So we've urged this vision is one hour of worship, one hour of service, and one hour of growth-oriented gathering where I'm offering the type of friendship that's productive to others and I'm receiving that type of friendship from others where there's some friction in the most constructive way possible. A productive way where we see conflict as an opportunity for greater intimacy, not to bludgeon each other. So why is this type of friendship needed? Why, Why do we need friends that we can trust to wound us? And why do we need to wear spurs when we get together? Why do we need sharpening? The simple fact is because we live on a battlefield and as the book of Revelation unfolds, that will become all the more obvious. We live on a battlefield. There's a battle raging around us and arrows and weapons are being fashioned and utilized. And we need biblical friendships because we have something to overcome is the most direct way to say it. Here's a short 
a short summary of the critique offered by Jesus to each of the churches. And they, these are very short summaries. I would encourage you to read chapters 2 and 3 later today and see what you can glean from it. To Ephesus, they had lost their original passion for following Jesus. And maybe you remember when you first came to faith in Christ and the energy you had, the desire you had to be in God's word and to be among the, the people of God and to pray. Ephesus had lost that original. Smyrna, they were entering a season of suffering that was brought by the devil. And he has a word for them. Pergamum, false teachings, caused idolatry. And the idolatry that was common in their community was bringing suffering. You know, sin brings suffering into our lives. Thyatira, sexually immoral, unwilling to repent. Sardis, spiritual apathy, laziness, and doing good works. Philadelphia, weak, needing to hold on to their confession. Laodicea, lukewarm, deceived, spiritually impoverished, in thinking they're wealthy, actually, deceived about their real spiritual state. There's a lot here for the American church to glean for sure. Make no mistake, Jesus addresses the church as a whole because he expects us to be carrying each other's burdens. He expects us to be yielding to one another for productive wounds. He expects us to be spurring one another on without bludgeoning, bruising one another. He expects us to be looking for those interactions. In fact, the charge to be victorious is given to each of the seven churches. That is to overcome, to conquer. Seven times it's mentioned once in each of, to each of the seven churches, you be victorious. And there's a promise given. Here are the seven promises, the seven calls to, to overcome, to conquer. What's, what's ahead for you? To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life. To the one who is victorious, will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the one who is victorious, I'll give hidden manna, hidden nutrition, hidden, fill, you know, something that fills us up that satiates our deepest longings to the one who is victorious. I'll give authority over the nations. You'll share in ruling and reigning. It's interesting, always in scripture, the reward for faithfulness is greater responsibility. In America, we make hard, the reward for hard work hammocks and margaritas. Vacation, retirement. In the Bible, the reward for faithfulness is always the opportunity to bear more responsibility here to govern over the nation. Sardis, the one who's victorious, will be dressed in white. That's the purity available to those who overcome what's in front of them. To the one who's victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of God. To the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. Who wouldn't want those blessings? These are offered to us by our Savior. We're called to address what is before us, whatever that might be. Spiritual apathy, a loss of original passion, a laziness, a weakness. Maybe you're in a spiritually weak season. We can go into seasons having once been very spiritually strong. We can actually enter seasons where we're less strong, where we're, I call it, you know, the injured reserve, the the spiritual equivalent of the NFL, right? It's injured reserve list. 
Those who aren't game ready, and that happens sometimes to us, we take a blow and we're not as strong as we once were. Now pay, pay close attention as I bring us to close here. It would be easy for us to think that the call to be victorious, to face the obstacles that we're charged with personally and as a community of faith that we have to overcome, the battles that we face in the 21st century, it would be easy for us to think that those are some things that we have to white knuckle and that we power up on and that it's through our effort alone that we overcome those. That's not the case. Rather, the victory that is experienced throughout the book of Revelation is a victory shared in as we identify with our Savior who's been victorious. Don't miss this. I think it would be easy for us to hear from the pulpit that I need to simply try harder, run faster, jump higher to clear these obstacles, whatever they may be. Sexual immorality is the obstacle de jour, I think, for the American church. Certainly there's an effort to be made on our part, but the effort is one of greater dependence. It's an effort of greater dependence on Jesus, not upon our own fleshly strength. I'll give you an example. If there were a memory verse uh, that I'd recommend for a very long book, the last book in a very um, difficult book, it'd be Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They triumphed over him. Now, the word there, the Greek word is nakeo, and it's the same word. So we're in Revelation, this is 12. And throughout chapters uh, 2 and 3, to the one who is victorious, it's the same Greek word as triumphed here, nikeo. In fact, this word, Greek word, is sprinkled throughout the book of Revelation. You could easily make a case that the book of Revelation should be uh, titled the, uh, the book of victory, or the book of overcoming, or the book of conquering. Greek words have a semantic range that, such that it could mean triumph here or it could be a call to be victorious in other places. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. How do we triumph? And by the word of their testimony, they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They didn't love their lives so much as to cling to them. We conquer the enemy they triumphed over him. Who is him? It's the enemy. It's the one who's putting obstacles in our way that's looking to devour us and trip us up and undermine our joy and our peace. We conquer. We are victorious over the enemy and all the obstacles we face by relying on Christ's victory. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome through the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, a lot could be said here, but what do we say? When we meet with obstacles, when we're addressing sin in our lives, or when we're avoiding sin in our lives, what's coming out of our mouths? Jesus had in his mouth a sharp, double-edged sword. What's coming out of our mouths? Is it about the power of Christ to strengthen us? Is it about the peace of God available to us? It is about the joy that the Lord wants to have for, uh, for us, give to us? 
They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, what's coming out of our mouths. We all have obstacles we're facing. Which means we're victorious through a dependence upon Christ's sacrifice in a celebration of the gospel. That's the word of our testimony. What are you celebrating on a daily, a weekly basis? What are you sharing as good news? It's good news the White Sox made it in the postseason. They clinched, right? That's good news. But is that primarily what we're talking about? The testimony that we have is a testimony that Christ lived a morally perfect life. That Christ died a sacrificial death. That on the third day, Christ was raised from the grave. Overcoming the consequences of sin that we're all facing on a daily basis. Guaranteeing for those who trust in him a resurrection experience and an eternity in heaven. Is that our testimony? Is our testimony, is, is our testimony that he's, the one who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world, the enemy that we face and the obstacles we face? What's our testimony? Which means our biblical friendships, assuming we have biblical friendships, folks that wound us for our own good, when we rub up against them and we are in, we're in constructive conflict with them, uh, we come away sharpened. Folks that wear their spurs around us, they don't have to walk on eggshells around us. Many of us cultivate friendships where we just, we tiptoe around each other. When our biblical friendships are functioning, then we're talking about the sacrifice of Christ and the promises of God that are ours in Christ. The word of our testimony, the blood of the lamb and its sufficiency. And we reject on this basis false teachings, which mired down the churches in Asia Minor. And we reject on this basis sexual immorality, and we cry out to God, have mercy on me, God, because I was taught sexual immorality in my home of origin, and I'm having trouble escaping it, but Christ died for it. In other words, when we face the obstacles we face, it's not our power, but his power in us. And we cry out to God. If I were to write a letter to the church in America, it would say something regarding prayerlessness. What is our testimony? If you've not yet started to depend upon Jesus, we're glad you're here. Hope, maybe you're just checking out the claims of Christ. I hope you hear the good news with clarity this morning. You are, your not, you are not your greatest hope. For the obstacles you're facing in your life, you are not your greatest hope. Your greatest hope is God in the flesh who lived a morally perfect life and gave himself as a sacrifice. And if that resonates with you today, it means the Spirit's already at work in your life. And you can begin today with the testimony that overcomes the world. The testimony that triumphs. You can just... Talk to your creator right where you are. Maybe you're listening online, and if that's the case, you can talk to God right where you are and say, God, I want to trust in the blood of Jesus. I want my testimony that he's greater than all that I'm facing. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you long ago began trusting in Christ, but you're stuck, 
in some difficulties, like the seven churches were stuck in some difficulties, let me spur you on this morning. Let me wound you in the most constructive way I can. I pray you're sharpened this morning. Let me encourage you to open your mouth in a minute and sing as loudly as you can the lyrics in these songs. Because they rehearse the gospel. They rehearse the good news. They have the testimony that overcomes in them. Let me wound you this morning. Let me sharpen you. Let me motivate and direct you without bruising you. Come forward for prayer. Come forward for prayer because it is the tiniest little faith-based act that actually says, I want something to change. Get out of your seat and physically come forward. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, it's a, it's a dialogue between an overseeing dem- demon and a demon that's being trained to uh, thwart the journey of a particular Christian. He says, whatever happens, don't let them think that what they do with their bodies matters. Folks, you know, we're embodied, and that was God's idea. Coming forward for prayer lets you engage your body in a faith-based activity that says, I need to pray, and I need someone to pray with me, and I, I need support of the community of God. Folks, I raise my hand in worship for much the same reason, because it's less boring than singing like this. It engages my body in a physical act of worship. It says that my body matters and that God's body was given for me and that my body will be redeemed. Bodies were God's idea. Let me wound you. Let me sharpen you. Let me spur you on without bruising or drawing blood. Find a place of fellowship weekly where you're knowing others and being known by them. In fact, I'll go one better. A large percentage of our church is in fellowship weekly and wasting their time, pretending everything's okay. We gather in small groups and all we ever do is talk about sports and we check in and we never open our hearts. And then we go home and we fight with our spouses or sweat it out as our kids are shipwrecked. Let me wound you. Let me spur you on. Lord, let this sharpen us. If you're going to Fellowship Weekly, don't waste your time. Open your life. Run the race of faith with others. Let me pray for us, then we'll, we'll sing. Lord Jesus, I want to pray for your goodness to us as a people. It's so easy to, to have ears and not hear. I pray we'd hear this morning. Give us friends. Give us a vision for a church where these types of relationships are the norm. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.